Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. Well, our focus is wrong if it's not Jesus first. So back to Jesus means if we're looking at anything other than Jesus first, we're wrong. We've lost our focus. Um, And then back to Jesus, back to the Bible. We find Jesus in the Bible. If we're looking for Jesus anywhere that isn't in the Bible, we're looking for a man-made version that is not accurate. God has revealed his truth about who Jesus is in the Bible. Back to Jerusalem. We interpret the Bible not by modern lenses, but by, by, by the methods and by the understanding that the church has always used for 2,000 years, going all the way back to the first church in Jerusalem. Um, our goal is to be biblical and to not reinvent the wheel and to modernize it. Um, our, our goal isn't isn't to make God and Jesus and the Bible fit with modern culture. Any place where we don't line up with the Bible, as has always been taught by the church for 2,000 years, then we're wrong. And that's not a popular message. Uh, Most, unfortunately, of our churches today think that this is an old-fashioned book, and surely we can tweak it and modify it and interpret it in a way that that gives us permission to keep doing what we were already doing. But then that's not the Bible changing us or making us godly. Instead of pulling us out of the mud, it tries to pull God down into the mud with us. And that's not, that such a God cannot save us. Our goal is to be biblical and to restore first century Christianity. And that's, that's one of the premises behind the restoration movement. That's what we're, what we are restoring. So, Today, that being our backdrop, today I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about communion because I believe that this is foundational to the church. Now, that's a bold statement to say that communion is a foundation of the church. But I think today with Scripture, I can back that up pretty, pretty comfortably. But I want to get the language down first because it can be a little, especially if you're not coming from the Christian churches and churches of Christ, the language can be a little bit confusing. We use different phrases, and different churches use different phrases. The Lord's Supper is a phrase that I like, and it, it's, it's pretty obvious. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's the phrase that's used. Um, and, and there are other references, and that one I don't think anybody argues. Um, breaking of bread. Now, that one's a little confusing because there are t- that phrase can mean two different things. Breaking of bread was just a phrase that was used, from what I can tell, to talk about getting together for lunch. It was a, it was a euphemism for eating together because, um, you know, when we talk about the phrase, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread, it wasn't always sliced. <laughs> and, and they would make these hard, and you would break the bread. And so that was, and, and, and the, the, the bread would sit on, on its, you would bake bread and you would sit it, but when people came over, you broke it and you shared it and you dipped the soft the soft bread into, into sauces and drinks and things. And, and that was what they did back then. And we see in the New Testament that sometimes the phrase 
breaking of bread, sometimes probably just means getting together to eat together. But it also then became um, an analogy, a, a euphemism for the Lord's Supper. And that's where things can get a little bit confusing because sometimes it means that and sometimes it doesn't in the New Testament. Um, uh, just kind of like baptism, sometimes we say that you're buried with Christ. We'll, we'll use the phrase, it's a burial. But sometimes when we talk about burials, we mean a real burial, right? Um, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, um, we're using the word supper in one way, but sometimes when I talk about supper, I'm just talking about supper. Um, communion, uh, from a Latin word, which means fellowship or participation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is an example of a, of a, of a, of a passage where that's where the language comes out of. The emphasis, the emphasis there is on participating in the Lord's Supper together with one another. Communion, communication, com meaning with, um, that we, we do this together. And, and we do it united together, but it unites us with the Lord. And, commun- and, it's, and in a sense, it's a form of communication. Uh, and so I like communion. There, there's, there's a term that we don't use in the, restoration, in the restoration movement very much, the Eucharist. Um, I do like that word. Eucharist is a Greek word. We didn't translate it. We just transliterated it. Kind of like baptism is a Greek word. Um, Eucharist is a Greek word. And it means to give thanks, um, and and I like that one. Uh, that you know, in First Corinthians eleven, we read that Jesus gave thanks and broke bread, and and so the the, the word is biblical, uh, it, it, and it's it's even Greek. Um, Jesus gave thanks and broke bread, and and I, and I like I do like that one. So what's the right term? I don't know of those four that I've just rattled off. I think they're all fine. Typically, we're going to stick with the way that we were raised. As I have been raised in churches that don't use the word Eucharist, I never use that phrase because it just doesn't come easy to me. But I'm not against the phrase. If you were raised Catholic or, or Lutheran or something, maybe that's a phrase that's more natural to you. Um, they're, they're biblical. Use what you will. Um, but I want to dig in and study the origins and the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and you would think that we're going to begin in the New Testament, but we're not actually, because we're going to go back to the, to the, to the beginning of the Old Testament, uh, the early parts of the Old Testament, and start there. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, and I don't have an outline today other than just scriptures I want to look at and talk about. There's no, no it's not a fancy outline today. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood 
and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plagues will touch you when I strike Egypt. You guys get the context. We know the story of Moses and the ten plagues of Egypt and um, Charlton Heston, and, and we, we, we know the story, right? We've seen the movie. If, if we haven't read it, we've, we've seen the movie. Um, we, we get the context. This is the, this is the prep for there's a final tenth plague that's a big deal. Um, and, and this meal is a big deal because it's literally life-saving. The blood spread on the doorposts will save the firstborn from Israel. Um, and what if they don't? What if they, what if they skip the meal and don't spread spread the blood? Well, then their blood is on their own head. That that lamb is a redemptive lamb. It will die and have its blood spread so that the people won't. We're going to keep. We're going to skip ahead then to to verse twenty one. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them. Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood of the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our home when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. Well, the imagery there is powerful, isn't it? I, I realize it's not symbolic. I mean, this really happened. But the imagery that this lamb will die and shed its blood so that you won't pay this penalty is powerful. We get, we get the imagery. I think it's no accident that the feast, that this was the feast that Je- Jesus celebrated 
with his disciples, the first communion was celebrating the Passover feast, the imagery of the lamb being slain so that the people wouldn't die. I don't think that that's an accident. The origin of communion is in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover feast. Um, This is what Jesus was celebrating. The lamb died for the people. It's about redemption. That's what the Passover is about. That's what Jesus is about. Um, The blood of the lamb that saved God's children. And those that didn't have the blood of the lamb, they they would die. It's pretty obvious. I'm reminded, you know, John 3.16 makes a reference to Numbers, eh, I'm going to take a guess, 14, somewhere around there, um, where the Israelites are grumbling against Moses and God, and snakes come and, and, and bite them, and, and they call out for help, and God says, he doesn't just fix it. He tells Moses, make a statue of a snake, a bronze snake, and put it on a pole, and if people want to get better, they can look to the snake. And you ask, well, who wouldn't look to the snake on a stick? Um, people who were too proud to admit that God's way was the answer, the solution. And Jesus, in, in very interesting imagery in John chapter 3, John three sixteen, we all know it. The context is that Jesus compares himself to that snake on a, on a stick and says, if you want to be saved, look to me. Uh, you don't have to. And that's also the context of John chapter 3. You don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to be saved if you want to do it your way. And it's the same with the Passover. Those who followed God's instructions were saved. And those who didn't, who felt that this is a silly waste of time, they, they would have paid the penalty. So we ask, what is the point of Passover? It's redemption by the blood of the Lamb, followed by a journey to the promised land for those who are redeemed, it sets the stage. It gets the world thinking. This, this was foreshadowing. It gets the world thinking about, about a better version of this. So when the Lamb of God comes and does the same thing, it doesn't come out of left field. God operates with foreshadowing and patterns. Fancy word is typology. God operates under certain patterns, and he kind of sets the stage and gets us thinking. God is consistent in his character and how he acts. Redemption is necessary if we want to belong to God. And so now we jump to the New Testament. And now we'll go, we could pick any different ones, but I I like, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your home, at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, well, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. 
While they were eating, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so again, very symbolic. I'm not saying symbolic like it didn't happen, but there, it's, it's pregnant with symbolic imagery. Um, but this is essential, and I, and I think it is essential that we believe that this is real. It's not a symbol. One of the points that we get out of this is that Christ knew what he was doing. He knew that he was going to die. He knew why he was going to die, and he made preparations accordingly. So what is the point of the Lord's Supper? Well, Jesus tells us. It is to remember his sacrifice for us, to remember the covenant that he has made with us. You know, we spent a year studying the covenant. Uh, again, a covenant is bigger than a promise. It's a promise with conditions. Both sides uphold their side of the bargain and the covenant is fulfilled. Communion is when we celebrate the covenant of redemption that God has made with us. We can be redeemed if we're followers of Christ. Christ died to save all men, but not even though Christ died to save all men, not all men are saved. That's because it's a covenant. It's not just a, it's not just a free gift or, or in that sense or, or a... A, uh, and by free gift, it's not just that God, it was forced on everybody. The gift has to be accepted, and it's not just verbally or mentally accepted, but we follow Christ. Um, those who accept the death, burial, resurrection of, of Jesus and choose to follow him. Accepting his death is more than just calling yourself a Christian. We walk in faithfulness. We're not going to get it perfect, but we try to follow this book. And when we fail and that's pointed out to us, maybe from the preacher, maybe from just reading the Bible, maybe even a guilty conscience, when we realize that we fail, we regret it. And, and we, we say, God, forgive me, and he loves to forgive us. God, forgive me, I'll try harder next time. Uh, we're not perfect, but we want to be perfect. We want to be holy. Um, at the table, at the Lord's table, we remember that Christ died for us to make us an offer that we could refuse, we could turn him down. But he made us the offer for salvation and the only one that's, that works. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Christ and following him. And that's, that's the offer of salvation. It is a take-it-or-leave-it offer. We're here because we believe taking it matters. Okay, so let's, I want to look at just a couple of verses in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Why do I think that this breaking of bread is communion? Because I do not believe that these people devoted themselves to lunch. I just don't think, considering the other three things are really a big deal for Christian faith. In this case, I don't think that this is, they, they devoted themselves to eating lunch. I don't obviously believe that, and no, I don't think anybody does. This is clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. 
Um, I am aware that there is no biblical command that you must take communion weekly. I get that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to do this every week. But if you're going to devote yourself to it, that doesn't sound like it's once a year. That doesn't sound like it's, you know, when we get around to it. Devoted to it makes it sound like it's a priority. If the other things are important, and I think that they are, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer, and those are important, I don't know why we would think that this isn't also important. Um, I don't, you know, that they didn't pay attention to it when they got around to it, or, or maybe only once a month. Yeah, I went to a church once that um, wasn't a restoration movement church, and they only did communion at this church once a year. Um, and after going there for a while, I said, I said to the minister, I said, I, I love this church, but I miss the Lord's Supper so much that although I love this church, um, I'm going to have to go somewhere else uh, because I just can't, I can't do this. It doesn't feel right. Um, he, he had said, I, oh, I just can't come up with a communion meditation that often. I said, well, there are books for that. We'll get you a book. I'll, I'll buy you a book. That's not a big deal. He said, I don't like prepara- communion preparation. I said, I'll do, I'll do it. I'll do communion prep. I'll, I'll, I'll get you a book of communion meditations, and I will, I, I, I will prep it and clean up afterwards. I just want to do this more often, I, I think weekly. Um, and he, he said, I just don't want communion to, and I, you'll hear this, you've heard this too probably, I just don't want it to lose its specialness. I said, let's apply that to everything else. Let's just pray once a year. It'll be really special when we pray, if we just pray once a year. And he said, yeah, I, don't, I can't respond to that. He said, you bring up a good point that I just have no argument for on that, on that note. So we went to, to weekly. There was one other girl in the church that, that had been raised Catholic, and, and she wanted weekly communion. And, and so we went to weekly communion. And after three months, he said to me, he said, he said, it is more special now than it ever has been. How did, how, did, how did I miss out on this? How did I not know that this is, you know, he said it has become the cornerstone of our, of our faith now. And, I, and so that's, that's me seeing it in real life, and I, and I believe that. And I believe that, that communion is foundational. Um, we, should, we should be devoted to these things that the apostles were, you know, that, that the early church was devoted back to Jerusalem. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, which we read about in the Bible, to fellowship, which is getting together, and more than just Christmas, the breaking of bread, which is communion, and prayer. And again, I will say, if you're only praying when you come to church on Sundays, you're not praying enough. And I think that you probably know that. Um, Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Well, yeah, when we do it, it's in remembrance of Jesus. As often as we do it, I think the example of the early church is not a once a year kind of thing. In fact, look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So, if you think I preach too long, I could be worse. Um, I, they got together on the first day of the week. That's why we do, one of the reasons we do church on Sunday. You know, I, I know that the Sabbath... Uh, in the Old Testament, it corresponds to our Saturday. But Christ rose on the first day of the week, and the, early ch- the example that we have of the early church is that they gathered together on the first day of the week to commemorate the Lord's resurrection. And 
and we, and we read here that they, they gathered to break bread. That was, that was the purpose. It wasn't to hear Paul speak, and while they were at it, they broke bread. They actually got together on the first day of the week to break bread. There's no command that it has to be done every Sunday. But I think that that's a pretty good example, that this, this church, this congregation, saw that the first day of the week, the purpose was to gather together to break bread. That's the language. Um, this, this tells me the purpose and the frequency, I think. Um, is it a command, a requirement? I don't think so because it doesn't phrase it as a command. I don't think you're a terrible person if you don't do it weekly. But I think it's the biblical example that we've got. It's the only example we've got. I, I realize that that's a little bit vague and there might be some room for interpretation. But the easiest reading is that they did it weekly. It takes, it's harder to read into it that we shouldn't do it weekly. And so I think with what we've got to work with, it makes more sense to have weekly communion than not. Um, if our goal is to be as close to the New Testament church as possible, I think this is how we do it. The goal isn't to be dogmatic, but our goal is to be as New Testament as possible, and this seems the way to do it. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to look at a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 16. There it is. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. There's one loaf, one Lord, one body. What this means is that this table unites us as Christians. Across the world, throughout time, this table brings us together. Um, it unites us. Uh, when we gather here, we gather with the saints. Uh, we, we are gathered with our brothers and sisters around the world. And I feel, to an extent, throughout time, you know, this is, this, this is the ta- there's the one body, the one table. If there's just the one table and the one body, then all the saints who came before us, and I'm using saints as the phrase of Christians, Biblically, that's a phrase to refer to Christians. This is something that we gather with with all the other saints who came before us and who will come after us. It should unite us. It should not divide. And this is Paul's point. Um, The Corinthians were a very divided church. And Paul said this table should not be divisive. It should unite us together. And that's all I want to say on that. So I want to turn over one more chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This to me is kind of the big kind of the big passage. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Went in the same way. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by our Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Well, Paul, Paul can be blunt and can call a spade a spade. First, he dispels the idea that opinions are equally valid. We live in this world where if you believe this and I believe this, it's all the same. Um, everybody has an opinion and everybody's opinions are equal and that's not true. He said if divisions are good, it will divide those who want what God wants from those who want to do their own selfish thing. Sometimes divisions show who is with God. Um, not every opinion is equally valid. Um, you can have an opinion, but some opinions are wrong, and some opinions are kind of dumb. And you can, you can have your opinions, but they're not all equally. I, years ago, got into a, a discussion with a young man who was trying to teach himself Hebrew using YouTube. And I don't recommend learning languages just that way. And he was trying to argue with me about what a word meant. And uh, he, he, he tried to end it with, well, we'll agree to disagree. And I said, no, I have two degrees in this, and you haven't graduated high school yet. We're not going to agree to disagree because on this subject, I have letters after my name that say that I know what I'm talking about, and you've watched a few YouTube videos. No, we're not going to agree to disagree. You're wrong on this subject. You can go away and think that you're right, but I'm not going to respect your opinion on this subject. Not all opinions are equally valid. Um, uh, that there are things that will grow a church healthy, and there are things that don't. And we want to grow a healthy church. One of the things that we read here, and we read this in Second Peter chapter two, and we read this in Jude, is that back then they had a love feast. We do. It's a potluck. The love feast. The love feast was a potluck. They would get together. Jesus and his disciples ate supper together, and the communion was after the supper. And so the early church did that. They would get together for a meal and do communion after that. Um, We could do that, but that's a lot of effort for the size of our churches. Back then, they were kind of smaller congregations, house churches kind of things. Um, That might be very appropriate for back then. I don't see, again, that it's a command that we do it that way. Um, But that's what they did, and that's where they got in trouble, uh, was that the people that brought the most food because they were wealthy were eating the food that they brought, and the poorer members were going hungry. Um, and maybe that's one reason not to do it, as Paul said. You guys are kind of missing the point of why you're meeting together and why you're eating together. The point isn't filling up. Eat at home. In fact, that's an, in fact, if any reason, there's a good line of reasoning of don't turn this into a potluck, maybe. Eat at home if that's what it's going to turn into. 
you're supposed to be sharing the Lord's Supper together. Uh, the point is the fellowship, not full bellies. Get full at home, share, share here. It's not about getting full. It's not about sitting with your friends. So Paul moves on then and tells us not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What, what does that mean? Well, I think that the context tells us quite a bit here. Um, the agape feast, the love feast, we are to take it with love. Um, recognizing the church, Paul says that, we recognize the Lord's body. Um, I, I think it's church because the phrase body, is, it says body, not blood. So I do think that, you know, we're not, you know are we remembering God's body? I think, I think we would remember Christ's blood that was shed for us if that's what Paul meant. Saying body to me is a reference to the church. Um, the church is his body. There are divisions. And earlier he'd mentioned that there was one loaf, one body, one church. Don't, don't be divisive in the church. So we realize that we're parts of the body, and we recognize this, that we are part of the whole, and it's not about us. It's a big deal. We, it's still a big deal. Our, in our world today, we have a lack of accountability. Everybody thinks that their way is important. I think the internet and YouTube and all that stuff has hurt that, that we all think that we're celebrities in our own mind, and we're always right. 1 Corinthians is about this. And then the next chapter, chapter 12, goes into this even more. But it brings up the question, does God discipline us? And Paul's answer, quite simply, is yes. Um, This is judgment. This is getting sick, falling asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. Um, Is taking communion improperly that serious? That seems to be what Paul is saying. I don't want to try to rewrite what Paul is saying. Um, I don't want to argue with him. He takes the Lord's Supper very seriously. All of Scripture takes it very seriously. So what does this mean for us? It's not just a cute ritual. Um, It binds us together as the church under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the incredible lengths God has done to redeem us and to establish His covenant with us. It's amazing, the Lord's Supper. And I think it's a big deal. I think it's foundational. And we should be serious about it. Um, and, it's not, and it's not flippantly done. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number, I think, 323. And so the question for you, have you accepted God's covenant relationship with you that he's offered to you through his son, Jesus Christ? If you have not, you know, we go back to the example of the Passover. Thinking this is what God's command is and then not going through with it, not roasting the lamb, not spreading the blood on the doorpost doesn't do any good. Even if you think that they're helpful, if you don't go through with it, you're lost. We're in that same situation. Thinking that Jesus is your Lord and Savior is not enough. We're called to follow him. And the Bible tells us how to follow him. It's more than just calling yourself a Christian. If it was just calling yourself a Christian, we wouldn't need all these other books that Paul wrote telling us how to follow Christ. If you have any questions on what that means to be a follower of Christ, I want to talk with you after church. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.